The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We're in Deuteronomy 33 for our scripture reading, if you would join me there. Deuteronomy 33. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun when the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. And this he said of Judah, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him. And may you be a help against his enemies. And of Levi, he said, let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Massa, and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law, They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord is His land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of Him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull, and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountain, There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and His judgments with Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, 
O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze. As your days, so shall your strength be. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in His excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. Well, that is a blessing enough already for the people of Israel, and certainly uh, we can draw some good comfort from that as well. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to turn there so you can follow along. Turn or tap there. I will allow you to use an electronic Bible if you wish. That will be good. There you go, brother. Very excellent. Oh, a Bible on your phone. We know something about those since we create them for non-English languages. And they have been a blessing to some thousands of people, so it's uh, encouraging that way. And we have access to a multitude of resources like that ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Despite the, the rain that might distract you hitting the roof above our heads, we, Lord willing, shall not be drowned out. We have an electronic sound system to help us here. And those of you at home just know we had a really big downpour here a couple, a couple times this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, we trust the Lord is going to help us this morning. This, you would think I would be preaching right before we celebrate the Lord's table, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to preach this uh, as we do every section of Scripture and uh, leave you to think about it for the next couple of weeks. Actually, there'll be at least two parts to this section, and then on December 6th, we'll have our next Lord's table service. So, the Corinthian church, as you might recall, had a number of issues in it. And uh, Lord willing, we will never achieve the record of those number of issues in our own assembly. But no church is perfect. No church is without fault or failing. And certainly it's good for us to review these materials so that we will avoid the problem to begin with. That's the best thing, right? Uh, An ounce of prevention uh, when we preach like this is worth uh, a whole lot more than a pound of cure when it comes to uh, things of this nature. So they had divisions in the church, they had uh, lawsuits, they had uh, people at each other's throats, Uh, they had immorality, they needed to do some church uh, discipline to those who were unrepentant in their sin. They had questions about marriage, they uh, had an issue with Christian liberty and how to exercise that in regard to uh, food offered to idols and we looked at all of that and then they had some issues with the relationship of men and women in the church and proper way to carry out ministry. We looked at that for a couple of weeks in the early part of chapter 11. Now we come to verse 17 of the 11th chapter, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Even in the midst of their very 
uh, core worship services, the Corinthians could not avoid some difficulties. And that's what we're looking at this morning. So follow along as I read verses 17 through the end of the chapter. And then what we're going to do is uh, we're talking about the Lord's table or communion. Some call it the Eucharist. Uh, we don't use that word as I think you'll see in one of the footnotes in the notes there. But uh, that's what we're talking about this morning because that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. That's what God wants us to glean from this section. And I'll give you some basics. That'll be kind of the majority of the first part of the message. Just talk about the Lord's table, what uh, it is. And I've, I've designed this for new believers mainly, but I hope that it will be helpful for you as well if you've been in the faith for some time. Certainly useful and necessary reminders for us as we think about our worship of the Lord and this important service of which we'll be speaking. So, starting in verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, notice the contrast between that verse and verse number 2. You remember last time we said, Now I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. But, oops, there's a problem. And that is, in this area, I don't praise you because you are not coming together for the better, but for the worse. When you come together as a church, dearly beloved, you're supposed to come together for each other's benefit and blessing, not for the worse. And that's what was happening in Corinth. They were actually, uh, every time they gathered for the Lord's table, they were actually going backwards. They were not going forward, which is God's design for us in our spiritual life. Verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. And listen to Paul's emotion here. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? That's in fact what they were doing. They were despising the church of God in Christ and shaming those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. There's nothing praiseworthy here for him to commend them. He says, why now? For, verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Here's how you're supposed to be doing it that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Just pause there for one second. I think I say this maybe not in these notes, but in the part two notes that you'll get. I just want to reemphasize, because I've had this question a number of times, what is this idea of unworthy or unworthily? It's an adverb that speaks of how one takes the table. 
It does not, it's not a, an adjective that modifies the person who takes of the table. Okay? We're not saying that somebody that comes to the table is unworthy. Actually, we can't say that because everyone who comes to the table is unworthy of participating in it. But that's not the, the issue. Once you're in Christ, you are able to participate at the table, but you can choose to do so in a way that is unworthy. A way that's unworthy, not a person that's unworthy. Does that make sense? So we have to make sure that we're clear about that. If somebody is not partaking of the table today, say if we had it or the next time we share it, I'm not saying and the Bible is not saying that that person is unworthy in some special sense. If they're in Christ, then their sins are cleansed and washed away and they may need to straighten some things out with some brothers or sisters or get some sin confessed or deal with some things in their life first. But this is talking about taking in an unworthy manner. But verse 28 then says, But let a man examine himself. There's part of the worthy manner of taking the table. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That means many have died. Let that sink in. God has punished some with death for their mistreatment of this worship service. Verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. There's another way in which we can partake worthily in a worthy manner by judging ourselves. But when we are judged, that is, by an outside judge, that is God, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Notice that. God chastens His people so that they will not be condemned with the world. In other words, He uses chastening to bring us back in line from the swerving uh, off-road path that we often take in our lives. Verse 33, Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. He's going to return to Corinth and take care of some of the details. Now, what about the Lord's table then? What is this that we're talking about? It is what we call an ordinance. Now, sometimes the word ordinance is used in the Bible to refer to a general command or decree of God. It's related to the word ordain. So, God has ordained certain things to occur. He has ordained who is raised up as the leader of every land and who is put down. He has ordained every particular matter that you might be able to think of. He's ordained if you are a person who has received the grace of God in faith in Christ or if you are not yet or even ever. But this is a special use of the word ordain or ordinance because it refers to a religious service or ritual commanded by the Lord Jesus for the church for the church, so it could not have been ordained before Acts chapter 2 because the church didn't exist before Acts chapter 2. This was not ordained for the nation of Israel. Okay, These things were for the church and they display a saving truth of the gospel in a, saving, in, in, in a tangible way. A saving truth of the gospel is displayed in an ordinance in a tangible way. Now that definition has a number of components to it. You notice that it's 
a religious rite or ritual. It's commanded by the Lord. It displays the saving truth of the gospel and it does so in an, in an external kind of way. The church has two of these ordinances. That's all. God has kept it fairly simple for us because we are quite simple. Okay, I mean that in a, in a humbling sense. We are just people that uh, need to follow God's command and He doesn't give us you know, things that are impossible for us to, to undertake as Christians. He helps us to do them. But the two ordinances are water baptism and the Lord's table. Christ has commanded that we as believers uh, share the gospel with people when they receive Christ in, in saving faith, then we baptize them so that they can display that faith in an external manner and that faith which they already have, of course, going in the water doesn't save anybody. And then the same with the uh, Lord's table. So what happens at the Lord's uh, table service? What happens in, in that service? Um, the bread and there, there's an uh, item of bread and of grape juice that we share. These are shared. The grape juice is called sometimes new wine or just wine. For us, we don't use alcoholic wine. We use actual grape juice, which I think is new wine. New being the key that it's not had time to ferment yet. Um, these two items are the main course, if you will. They're the only thing, actually, that is that is consumed in the Lord's table service. Prior to sharing these items, we usually sing a couple of hymns. I'm saying this for anybody that hasn't been to a service before so you know what to expect. Uh, we sing a couple of hymns related to the Lord's death for us. We then uh, speak on the topic, give some sermon. Uh, by the way, our practice is maybe a little bit different than some churches where like, I could preach on you know, James chapter 1, just any old text of Scripture, and then at the end of the service we spend 15 minutes to share the elements of the table. And our tradition here in the church... Well, I don't believe that is wrong. I don't believe it's ideal either because what we'd like to do is focus our attention for the entire service on the Lord's table. So that's why we have songs related to it and preaching related to it. And then we partake of the elements by giving thanks for each one, the bread and the cup, and then we consume those together. In the early church, they would often have a love feast or agape meal preceding the Lord's table. And that was what was getting them into trouble here in, in, their, in Corinth. That and, and churches in subsequent years had similar troubles. So we, uh, we don't do that. Although um, you, remember, you, might, you might remember we do something actually kind of similar to this. On the first Sunday of the month, we would have potluck at noon. And then in the evening often we'd have the Lord's table. So it was somewhat similar, although separated by some hours of time uh, that we would do that. Of course, we haven't had a potluck, much to my chagrin, in a long time. Uh, but we'll get back to those someday and uh, look forward to them. Uh, so we, uh, we have those elements. And then afterwards, we sing a hymn of thanksgiving to the Lord. And uh, that's the sum of the service. Now, who participates in this? Well, there's a couple of different angles you can take on that question. One is, the church, the church participates in this. Despite uh, the, the text here, where does it say that you are to examine yourself? You see that? 
uh, verse 28, let a man examine himself. This service is not a private religious ceremony. Let's make sure that we understand that. It's not a ceremony that you can say, okay, I'm going to have communion now in the privacy of my own home or me and my wife or my wife and kids and around the table will have our grape juice and our, our bread or our matzah as it's called. No, uh, this ordinance is like baptism for the gathered church. So I, I hold this as a conviction and uh, therefore don't uh, go to private homes or even hospital rooms to share the Lord's table with people. It's for the church together. Now, if, if a bunch of people from the church gather at a different place than this building, that's fine. It's, remember, the church is not the building. It's the people. So the people can gather anywhere they want, but it's a, it's a church service that is for a gathered group of believers. It's for the gathered church, as it's called. And how do we know that? Well, Look at 17. He says, since you come together. Verse 18, when you come together. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together. Verse 34, lest you come together for judgment. So every time, there's five portions there that indicate that we're talking about a getting together kind of service. And it's demonstrated by the Lord and the disciples in the Last Supper, right? They were all gathered together around that table sharing uh, the elements uh, that the Lord was redefining at that time. All right, now, um, what else? You notice in this text that there is this question about eating and hungry and eating at home and, and all of that. They were not to come to the church to have a meal to satisfy their hunger. That was for their home. Okay, that's it's not a, a, um, a, uh, an accusation against having a potluck lunch. That's not what's talked about here. But they were doing this in association with the Lord's table and abusing it. We'll look at that a little bit more in detail. But the, uh, the gathering is for the ordinance specifically. It's for the church as a body. Now, the ordinance was shared regularly in the early church. And I was given a question a couple of weeks ago in anticipation of this portion coming up in our preaching. And the person asked, how often should we partake of the table? I'm paraphrasing their question. Actually, the question was, when the word often is used, it seems like that means often. And we don't do it that often. Because their idea, this particular person's idea of the word often was more than once a month. And so I paused and thought about that question and wrote to them a reply and some of that is here. So the short answer is that in the Lord's words and Paul's words, we're left with the impression that the Lord's table should be observed fairly frequently. But we do not have a prescription about how frequently. It doesn't tell us. Weekly, daily, monthly, annually, quarterly, or, or any other interval or even less structured interval. Uh, we could do it any time we wish, really. Um, <clears throat> but look at verses 25 and 26. I hope you have your Bibles open and you're looking here. We're trying to justify what we believe and practice from the Scripture because we believe this is God's Word. It says, in the same manner speaking about the institution of the table, he also took the cup after supper, saying, the cup 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it. And then look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. There's where the idea of often comes from. But the text doesn't say do it often. It says as often as you do it. It's it's whenever you do it. It's at whatever time you choose to have the table. It's uh, every time that you have it. You're remembering. You're doing it in this particular worthy manner. And so on. So we don't have a particular prescription. We don't demand a weekly celebration of the Lord's table, although some churches have it every Sunday after service because they feel it is that important. And in the early church, it seems that it was done at least that frequently, if not sometimes more. We have settled on a monthly frequency in our church and many churches like ours because it seems like a good interval at which you don't go too long between uh, the Lord's table and you don't have too short of a time. And what, what I'm thinking about is you don't want it to become common. So common, often is one thing or frequent is one thing, common is another where you just, oh, we got to do this again. And it becomes an issue like in the Old Testament Israel when they're like all these sacrifices are a weariness to us, you know. And it becomes... Common in the sense of like, like um, not, not quite vulgar, but like that sort of just a worldly thing. It's just done. It's a ritual. It's empty rituals, really what it is. So we don't want it to be too frequent that that becomes the case. But we also don't want it to be so infrequent that our spiritual condition declines between commemorations of the Lord's death. Now let me just... I don't know if I have that particular phrase in your notes, but let me just park there for a second. It's my conviction by experience and by, by how I know the Lord and over the years that if you go a long time between... and I'm, Listen, I'm going to admit, I don't find this specifically in the text here, but the idea of often implies that God wants us to do it often. If we don't, something bad happens. And what that bad thing is, is that you can decline spiritually without even really recognizing it. You, 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 know, you, you haven't had a time structured into your schedule where you come to the church and you do some serious business with the Lord. Where you're quiet before God, where you think about the fact that yes, He did die for my sins and I am a sinner. And... You know, I've not, I, I haven't been doing everything just like I should this month with my wife and my children and, and my attitude about my work and, and, and school or whatever, all of this stuff. And so it's a checkup time. We need that. If you go six months without it, you can stray very far away from the Lord without, you know, you just, you can kind of wake up, you know, the day before six months is up and say, whoa, wait a minute, what has happened to me? I'm facing the Lord's table now. Or you come to, to a church and you didn't realize they were having the table and you're like, uh-oh, uh, I, I'm not in too good a standing with the Lord here. Um, that's why we need it frequently. And so I've noticed that people can fall into spiritual decline or what literature in this area calls spiritual declension just a fancy word for decline, that you don't notice 
and you haven't you know, been sensitive to, and it's just damaging to your spiritual life. And so, that is behind every, my thinking every time when I invite you to come to the Lord's table. All of that, when I say I urge you to come to the Lord's table, that's what that means. Okay, That's like, you take that now as code language, meaning everything that Pastor just said for the last five minutes, that's, what, that's why he said that. It's, it's essential for my role as a pastor to remind you that you need to get your checkups. I know how you hate going to the dentist every six months or every nine months or however frequent it is for you. Some of us is getting more frequent as the years go on, right? Yeah. I know you don't like that, but this is essential. This checkup is essential for you in your spiritual life. Don't let it go. You just don't, see, you just don't even know what you don't know if you don't know this. Okay? To use a phrase that uh, my brother would like to use. You just, you just, it's like what we're talking about, what we'll talk about tonight, a spiritual um, self-deception. You don't even know when you are in that state that you're so far away. It's like the tragic, tragic stories of, of pilots who misread the, the instruments on their, on their instrument panel. Terrible one. I think it was out of Brazil. They're supposed to be going east and they're misreading the, the, the new dial on there. That's, they think it's like 27. It's talking about 27 degrees and it's actually got an extra zero behind it. So it's 270. And they're going west instead of east. And they end up crashing this airplane because they can't find where they are. Where are we? We have no clue. So they go off course and the, the, the longer they go, the farther off course they get and they don't even know what's going on. And that's what can happen in our spiritual lives when we stray away from the Lord and don't keep... In fact, this is why we come to church every week because we need more than just once a month. We need preaching all the time because we know the human condition. So, the communion then is an opportunity to reflect about one's own life with the Lord Jesus. It's a time when confession can be made. It's an opportunity to check your relationship with your fellow believers. You know, your family, your, your, everybody that you're around. Make sure that those relationships are on sound footing. Not treating the Lord's table like this is a grave error. And when I say grave, I mean grave. Because some of the people in Corinth were so off base that the Lord said, I can't have any more of this. Individually, these people need to go. They were sick, they were weak, and some of them even died because God allowed that to come into their lives because they were misusing this worship service. Now, the Lord's table also, we're still kind of going over some of the basics here. The Lord's table is designed as a memorial service to call to mind again the great work of Christ on our behalf in dying for our sins and rising again. This was the act of of Jesus that sealed our forgiveness and guarantees our justification. Think of that. That Jesus Christ died to seal our forgiveness, to provide forgiveness for us. Without that, you cannot be forgiven. Without the shedding of blood of Jesus, not just animal blood or any blood, without the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, you cannot have your sins forgiven. 
and you cannot be justified, made right before God without that work. Now, I said also in the definition of an ordinance that it's something commanded by Jesus for the church. Where is that command? Well, we see it here, but we'll go back to uh, Luke, the Luke passage in Luke 22, and we'll just see it spelled out for us in case you're wondering, well, where does the Lord tell me to do this? Well, it says in Luke 22:19, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, "This is my body, which is given for you." Okay, fact. Do this imperative. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup. He defined what it is, gave the fact. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And then he told them to drink it. Drink it. And Paul, the apostle, picks that up in this section in verses 23 to 26 and tells us plainly, take and eat. So this is obviously not just for the disciples at the Last Supper. This is for all Christian disciples ever after that. Paul is making that clear to us here. And then, he, so he says, eat. And then, same manner, he takes the cup. This is the cup. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So it is a command of the Lord for us to do that. Do this in remembrance of me. It's repeated by the Lord and the Apostle Paul. So it's a command. The definition said not only is it a command, but it's also something that displays a saving truth of the gospel. This is what distinguishes baptism and the Lord's table as ordinances from other events in the church life or in in the Christian life. For instance, we don't have uh, an ordinance for foot washing. Foot washing is explicitly said in John 13 not to reflect a saving truth of the gospel. It has to do with ongoing cleansing of sin, remember? Once you've been bathed, you don't need to wash except for your feet. Remember the Lord said that? The bathing part is is the salvation picture and the washing of the feet is the consistent cleaning that we need from daily sin that we get ourselves into. So it's not a saving truth of the gospel. Other churches have things like um, last rites or what's called extreme unction. Some have marriage as an ordinance or ordination to the priesthood as an ordinance or what they call a sacrament. None of those picture a saving truth of the gospel. They, they may be very important events in the life of a, of a person or a couple or a church, but they're not saving uh, uh, pictures of things that that Christ did for us, okay, having to do with salvation ex- itself. So, water baptism is one of those two ordinances that shows in a tangible way that the believer has come into union with Christ. He's been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, dying to sin, going into the water, rising to new life, coming out. That's what baptism means, okay? And so, just be clear. In case uh, this is your beginner's class here, be clear to know that being baptized does not save anybody. It's a picture, a symbol, an external ritual that shows that you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior in your heart, in your mind. You have believed. You have repented. You have turned away from your sin. You said, look, whatever I was a follower of before, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I'm not following sin. I'm not going down that path. I've become a follower of Christ. 
When you do that, that moment, you're saved, secure, on your way to heaven if you should be hit by a bus on your way to your baptism service. We'll still be able to gladly know that you are in heaven after that. Hopefully that doesn't happen. But when you come to be baptized, you're saying to the church, look, I'm one of you. I'm sharing with you in that common life that we have in Jesus Christ because I have made a decision to follow Jesus. That's water baptism. In the communion... The bread represents the body of Christ, which was killed for us. Who was killed for us, I might better say. The juice symbolizes the blood of Christ, which was poured out in His death for us. So you got the two symbols now. You've got the, the bread and the juice, or the new wine. And then you have eating and drinking. That shows that we have come to participate in, prior to this in the benefits of Christ's death on our behalf. We have acknowledged His work for ourselves. Again, just like the water and baptism doesn't save, the eating and drinking doesn't save anybody. Although, again, to contrast our understanding with other churches, there are some who say you must do this. And on a regular basis, even daily, if you are to be in a state of good grace with God. Instead, we teach with the Bible here that doing the Lord's table, eating and drinking, pictures that you already have repented and believed in Jesus Christ. In other words, and here's where you know, all this may have seemed very basic to you folks, but listen, because this can be confusing. In other words, by believing in Christ, we become partakers of the life-giving benefits of His death for sinners. By believing in Him. Okay, John 6.47 says, He who believes in Me has everlasting life. Okay, can you put a bookmark there in your mind? He who believes in Me has everlasting life. And this is pictured as eating and drinking of Jesus Himself later in John chapter 6, where He said, Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has everlasting life. Okay, are you with me? One of our sisters who's in heaven had no end of struggle with this. Do you remember, brother? Always would ask me about this John 6 because she had been taught the sacramental view of the Lord's table. Like when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're actually eating and drinking Jesus Himself. His body is there. It's the real presence, they call it, of Christ in the Eucharist. And, and, and people think that it comes out of this passage in John 6 where Jesus said, look, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people who were listening to him at the time said, what does this man mean to say that we eat, I mean, that we're cannibals, that we eat him and we drink his blood? That's disgusting. No, but remember, I said, go back to that bookmark. What was the bookmark? He who believes in me has everlasting life. He who eats and drinks has everlasting life. So what does that mean? Eating and drinking are metaphorical for believing because they have the same exact outcome. So we don't have to get all turned around and confused up about that situation. It's just a symbol. It's just a way of Him expressing when you believe, it's like you're eating and drinking Him. You're partaking of the benefits of the work that He has done on the cross when you believe. Now then, every, t- every month, say, that you come to the Lord's table, 
you are eating and drinking in a tangible way to picture that you ate and drank of Jesus in salvation, which means that you believed in Him. It's very easy, but you have to kind of carefully take a couple of steps to get through the metaphor to the literal meaning of it. It's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to trust, to express faith in Him, to commit yourself in faith to say, Lord, my eternity is in Your hands. I believe in You because You are the One who has died and risen again to guarantee that all those who come to You will have eternal life. And so that's what it means, this this picture of eating and drinking. Now, for those who are ignorant of the symbols of the Lord's table, they really thought... Now, this is not not in John 6. We're going to go beyond John 6 into the early church history. They thought that there was some kind of cannibalism actually going on in the Lord's table service of the church. Now, you shake your head at that and you say, well, how, how could somebody be so ignorant? My friends, we're living in a society over which I am very burdened that there is a vast, can I say a vast amount of ignorance? A vast amount of not knowing? There is very little biblical knowledge in our culture. That's why it's going down the tubes. And so people could look at, outsiders look at the situation and say, well, that sounds like cannibalism to us. They literally believe that. In Rome, the charge was easy to raise against the Catholic view of communion, which teaches that the elements are not symbols, like we believe, but the elements actually embody the actual real presence of Christ. When the host is blessed, it actually transubstantiates into the very body of Christ. So it was kind of easy to see how somebody could think, well, that sounds like cannibalism. But if they would just come to a service and observe and listen, they would see that it's not that, even in a Catholic service, but especially in our kind of service where we say, look, the bread is bread. When I distribute it, it's bread. When when somebody gives thanks for it, it's bread. When you put it in your mouth, it's bread. When it goes down your gullet, it's bread. And when you digest it, it's bread. That's all it is. Same with the juice. But it's a symbol of something that's happened in your spiritual life. Well... Listen to this person who wrote, and I don't know how to say his name. I don't think I have him in your, in your notes, but I'll call him Caecilius, a pagan. said this, You Christians are the worst breed ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment you can get. Nobody likes you. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are are all cannibals. You eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. They have it totally wrong. Octavius the Christian responds, that story is probably based on reports that we share together a meal of the body and blood of Christ. That we do. But it is not human flesh we eat. It is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate the Lord's death. Easy. Can't you people out there in the world uh, get out of your crass wooden literalism and understand some figures of speech and metaphors and things of that nature? No, because they don't want to. 
they want to criticize believers who are and should be of all people the best citizens of any society. Now, why did we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table by that name? Some have made a deal about that. Well, the first time the supper was done, it was done under the direction of our Lord. It was a supper, it was a Seder, a Passover meal, so thus the name the Lord's Supper. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.21. We've already been over this passage. It says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Okay, So the table, again, you have to be able to understand metaphors, right? The table means, what do you, when you say somebody, join me at the table, like to eat a meal. Right? That's what the table means. It's, there's going to be food consumed there generally. You know, unless you're doing your taxes at the table. Nobody wants to do that, of course. But, uh, you know, generally we say the table, the table of the Lord, it has to do with food. Like the table of the demons was literally a table where they sat and ate idle meat, idle sacrificed meat. So that's what, where the name comes from. What about communion? Why is it called that? Well, it means fellowship. And that was alluded to here where we were. You, you cannot partake of the table of demons, the cup of demons. If you're a Christian, you have to depart from all that old, old way of life. And so, uh, this is a fellowship. It's a manifestation, the Lord's table, of your partnership with Christians that share together in the life that you have and they have in Christ and that He has shared with us. A couple more points uh, in our basic introduction here. The Lord's Supper is meant to be taken by all church members in good standing. Man or woman, young or old, and all imperfect. It is meant for self-examining members, not flippant members. It's not meant for church members living in unrepentant sin. In other words, if you are living in that way, then I would say you are not invited to partake of the elements of the table tonight at our service or this morning on December 6th when our next one comes. Okay. Now, sometimes in history, the um, laity, you know that term? Not the clergy, but the laity. They were prohibited from taking the elements of the table. Or, for many years... In some churches, the cup was withheld. Only the bread was shared with the people in the church. Those are not biblical practices. Both the bread and juice are given to all participants. You cannot withhold the bread or withhold the cup. Now, uh, one question that comes up sometimes is, um, you call it the Lord's table, but then how can you say, if you're the pastor, how can you say certain people aren't allowed to take it? How can you say that? Is, are you saying this is the church's table? Well, uh, yes, I am. Well, it's the Lord's table. No, listen. It's the Lord's table given to the church to practice in a holy manner. And not only am I obligated to protect the boundaries of the table and say you just can't come. And it's, it's not just wide open. Some churches have just wide open. If you're here today, just participate. It's, you know, it's all good. 
No, it's not necessarily all good. Not necessarily all good for a couple of reasons. One, the holiness of the whole service, but also, I don't want you to eat and drink judgment to yourself if you're not appropriately settled with the Lord and prepared and and in the right uh, spirit and mindset. It's dangerous for you to participate if you're not right with God. And so I don't want you to do that. And so we are obligated to protect the communion. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the person who's removed from the fellowship of the church with such a one not even to what? Eat. Did you know that? Now, I ta- I, I, when I taught through that with you, we talked about how that applies to meals more generally, but certainly it would apply to the Lord's table. That somebody who's living like an unbeliever in the church, who's been removed from the church, is not to be partaking of the table until they come back into repentance and, and make things, you know, give the restitution or make things right however that's necessary to do. So, if you're unsure after I've said all this, whether you should participate or not, either A, don't, or B, come and talk to me or another brother or sister and say, hey, what do you think? Um, you know, sometimes there's a, a kind of a fly in the ointment situation where you're like, look, I've done everything I can to try to make things right between me and this other brother. I don't want to violate Matthew 5 that says, look, when you come to the, the altar to offer your gift in the Old Testament context and you remember your brother has something against you, hey, leave it, go make things right with them and then come back. I've tried to do that, but this person just won't live peaceably with me. What do I do? Well, we can investigate that situation just a minute and think about it and then you know, think, okay, as much as lies in you, have you taken care of everything you can take care of? Yes, okay, that's fine. In other words, an external party who is being cantankerous cannot prevent you from partaking of the table. But you, you, your condition can prevent you from partaking at the table if you're not walking right with the Lord. Now, what was the problem in Corinth with this table? Well, they... Uh, had a very serious issue. They were not praiseworthy at all in their carrying out of the Lord's table. They were coming together for the worse, not for the better. And what was the issue? Verse 18. First of all, when they came together as a church, Paul said, I hear there are divisions among you. Now, he mentioned these already in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. But there were divisions of somewhat of a different nature. There the divisions had to do with, look, I'm favorable to Paul as the minister of the gospel. No, I like Peter. No, I like Apollos. No, I'm I'm more spiritual than all that. I follow Christ. And Paul labors with them to show them that, look, Paul, Peter, Apollos, we're all just ministers serving under the Lord and you shouldn't be doing this with us. Okay, We're not not to be the, the footballs that are thrown around in the church there. In Corinth, it's all about the Lord Jesus and God's work in the church. So, this division, though, is a little bit different because there were divides between those who had and those who had not. Look at verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? You have to understand a little bit about the socio-cultural makeup of the church at this time. You had wealthy 
people in the church and you had poor people in the church. Poor meaning like servant poor, slave poor. In Rome, for example, and many of its outlying cities, there were a high percentage of people who were slaves. Uh, I mean, 30% or more. I didn't look up the number, but I remember being a very high number. Look around. A third of us or more could have been in a slavery situation. When we leave the church, we go back to being enslaved or to a, a circumstance in which we have to serve a master or in a bondage, a debt bondage to them or something like that. Uh, or we were captured uh, you know, in a far-flung part of the empire and brought back to this city. Uh, you know, we don't know all the details exactly in Corinth, but you had the haves and the have-nots. The rich were somehow ignoring the poor, not loving them, not showing them kindness. Where did they meet? They didn't have church buildings, so they met in the home of somebody who had space in their home to have a gathered meeting, which means that they naturally were meeting at the home of one of the wealthy members in the church, right? Because the poor people maybe didn't even have a home to live in. So what was happening was then that the rich people were putting on this meal before the service began and people were, their, you know, their, their, their click was coming to that meeting and they were leaving out the others because they weren't of the same social class. More of the outcasts, the, the lower caste of the society. And so they had this division in the assembly. This is a very serious division in the assembly of the believers. And Paul says in verse um, 19, there were these divisions. It's believable. There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized. So what was Paul saying there? There's not too many advantages to having factions in your church. I hope you agree. But there's one. That is, it can crystallize or make clear who is on the Lord's side and who is not. Okay? When you have that kind of division. Somebody believes in the resurrection of Christ and somebody doesn't. Well, that makes it crystal clear who is with Jesus and who is not. People who are mistreating members of the church and their clique over here, and then the other people who just want to worship God and participate at the Lord's table. Who's on the Lord's side? Well, it's not the rich people that are despising the poor. That's for sure. Look at James chapter 1. Don't show any partiality toward those lower class members of the church, lower income members or whatever. They don't have maybe the nicest clothing and all that. Well, they're servants. What do you expect? They're not you know, the, the, the gentrified upper class of people. So, Factions had some value so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Um, By the way, as persecution comes more to the church, it will have a similar effect. Factions show who's on the Lord's side. Persecution does the same because the chaff will tend to fall away as persecution increases because why, why do they want persecution if they don't really, if they're not, you know, they don't have any real skin in the game, you know what I mean? not really believers. So that does help to purify the church. So they would take their, their, uh, their service like this and 
And so they would have this meal before the Lord's table, you know, elements. Look at verse 20. It's not, you're not eating the Lord's Supper there. You're eating your own supper ahead of others, so they won't even wait. First of all, that's rude. Certainly rude to not, to not wait, but then it's more rude than that to withhold or, or prevent people from coming to participate. One's left hungry. Another, listen to this at the end of 21, in the church is drunk. That means drunk. I mean, that means alcohol. That means inebriation. What? And well, that's what Paul says in verse 22. This is nonsense. You should be eating at home. You should be eating your meals at home and certainly not getting drunk at any time. Not segregating the church into haves and have-nots and all of that sort of thing. You're all together. You're all Christians. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. Remember Galatians chapter 3? But they didn't, they didn't get that. They had to be instructed again in that. There's no in-crowd and no out-crowd. No click here and click there. No getting drunk in the church. What kind of church is that? So things are so bad that Paul is saying, look, there's judgment coming for you guys. If you don't get this straightened out, judgment coming. And he talks about that later on. We'll have to stop there and uh, deal with that judgment and what the institution of the Lord's table is the very next time that we have opportunity. But we can't do that this morning because I've already talked too much. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the, the basic ideas of the Lord's table have gotten across clearly and especially this idea of how it relates to how we believe or consume the Lord Jesus Christ as John 6 talks about so that we will be clear about the nature of the symbolism of the Lord's table and the reality of belief in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that has helped perhaps some who are listening to this, maybe online even, that they would understand what is required of them. The Lord says to us that all who call upon Him will not be ashamed but will have eternal life. And so I pray that ones who maybe haven't yet called upon Him will do so this morning or whenever listening to the recording of this message. Lord, I pray that salvation will come to the homes in which this message is heard and then that they can participate in accordance with Your Word at the next Lord's table in their local church. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.